Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Today on Scores and Pours, we'll be talking about canned wine. We'll be talking about music, classical music for road trips, and we'll tell you how we decided to join those topics in just a moment. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as much as you can afford or as little as $1 a month on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you can also find a playlist and a canned wine list. And thanks to our patrons for tuning in and for some of you that are purchasing merch, thank you very much. For those of you who would like to buy merchandise, a hoodie or a tee, that's a scores and pours, you can find a link on our Patreon website. Road trip! Road trip! What's up, Emily Reese? <laughs> How's it going, Joe Mott? I'm doing great. How good. are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited. Yeah. So how this topic came up about road trips, classical music for road trips, and, you know, for some of you, you might be like, I mean, I listen to Madonna <laughs> on road trips. <laughs> um, yeah, you do. But but we talked about, you know, wow, what, what, what would your preferred music be for a long trip. Yeah. And then I then we started to talk about canned wine and how ca- the convenience of canned wine and obviously you're not drinking canned wine in the car. Right. I mean maybe a little bit in Wisconsin. Just kidding. Just totally kidding. Yeah. No, you're not. I'm going to California for some business trips and it just turns out that Emily Reese has some things to do in California as well and we were like, wow, we can avoid the Rona. Yes. If we drive out together. <laughs> and then we did the calculation and it was like over 2,000 miles. And I looked at Emily and I was like, oh, can you put up with my ass for 2,000 miles? We're about to find out. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'll, I'll probably slap you after probably 1,000 miles of harpsichord. Yeah. I mean, for sure. <laughs> but it'll be a, it'll be yeah. a really fun time. Yeah, I might do some solo, I don't know, some solo viola or something just to break up the monotony of the harpsichord. That's when I'll slip in the Janet. Yes. In the Anderson Pack. And then That's the, Miss Jackson. If, if you're, you're nasty. nasty. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Should we get right to this situation? Yeah, let's do we better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to talk about canned wine. I love canned wine. There's plenty of swill out there that's in a can. Yeah. Just like any bottle of wine. Yeah. Let's face it, canned wine is here because of convenience. It doesn't make a wine taste better or worse. I mean, it can depending on your purpose, but canned wine is all about convenience. You know, when we think about canned wine, I don't know, what do you think about when you think about canned wine? Because you don't think about road trips. No. So what, do you, what do you think No, about? I know, exactly. I mean, I think of like picnics and being out in the park or having a hike or camping or just all the times when you can get away with having alcohol outside, really, or just even sitting in the backyard. But I never in my life imagined there could possibly be good wine in a can until I met you. And you're like, oh, well, natty wine, people think it's smart, too. And, you know, have for the also. same for the same reason. E- exactly. And it's lighter, too. I mean, and I'll talk that, about that in a, in a moment, go more into the conveniences of it. But I mean, it is lighter if you think yep. if you're going to bring a few, say, bottles of wine while you camp. Yeah. A, you don't need your glasses, and B, just the weight of a bottle is yeah. so much more than the weight of a, of a yeah. can. So what are we going to drink? Let's hold off on that just a hot second. Okay. I do, I do want to <laughs> mention that, you know, it's it's only been in the last couple of years that 
canned wine has exploded here in Minneapolis, at least, and that we were able to find producers that are made in a bit more of a wholesome, natural, sustainable way. What has been around for 15 plus years? Sophia, Coppola, in a can. Amazing. Blanc de Blancs in a can. You know what they came with? Straws. Yeah, mm. thanks. Where, where do those go, Pacific? garbage patch. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we this is not an environmental podcast. I mean, a little bit. Well, And was that stuff bad? No, it's fine. But it wasn't made in a way that was like, you know, artisanal in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's great that there's just been a huge boom in quality wine in a can in the last, say, two to four years, which is great. Yeah. No, it sounds amazing. What, what do you, what are we going to listen to? What are we going to start I mean, if we could like maybe throw on a little whoop, whoop when we, but then once we get out of the city, what are we going to listen to? Sometimes when I'm driving, obviously I like to put on, you know, rock or pop or soul, like normal people music. (laughs) Okay. But sometimes I'm just not wanting that. And also sometimes I think of a car trip, especially, or a plane trip, any kind of where you're sitting for a long time, I think of that as an opportunity to listen to stuff I haven't listened to very much. One of my favorite things to listen to that I've learned through that kind of experimentation and having time to just listen is trio sonatas. And trio sonatas come from the Baroque era. One of the reasons that I like listening to no trio way. sonatas. I know. <laughs> I know, but hear me out. because the Bar- In the Baroque era, refresh our memory of when Baroque that is? Baroque era is from about 1600 till 1750. Okay. So the most famous Baroque composer is Johann Sebastian Bach. Another famous one would be Vivaldi or Handel. Um, One of the things that classical music can have a problem with in a car is if it's really dynamic, meaning there's really soft places and there's really loud places. And are you going to ride the volume button? Well, if you know the piece well, you can do that. But if you are new to the piece and you're not sure exactly when it gets super loud, and that can just be really frustrating to listen to when you're going 80 in a car, right? Yeah. So one of the things I like about the Baroque era is the Baroque era has a lot of harpsichord in it, which is basically one volume. And so the volume changes in Baroque music are far less extreme than in basically any other era of music that came after it. So it makes it really simple to listen to in the car. The trio sonata became a thing in the Baroque era. And we talked about this, I think, in an episode last year with Archangelo Corelli, who invented Mm. the trio sonata. And the trio sonata, generally speaking, is violin, a cello-type instrument, and a harpsichord. And it's just very simple to hear the music, and it's lovely, and it's easy to listen to. Does does anybody ever say... Let's swap out the harpsichord for the piano nowadays, or is oh it- nowadays for sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean okay. obviously in the Baroque era there wasn't piano. Yeah, but they might use an organ instead. Okay, so okay. yeah, and then you know sometimes the violin might be a flute instead. They could kind of interchange some of the parts depending on who composed the piece, but it just they're easy to listen to. Uh, so yeah, and I'll talk about some other types of easy listening, quote unquote. Uh, things for road trips later but okay yeah. so give me a little give me a little teaser who are we going to listen to it while we're in the car what how, how well, should we start our listening one of my favorite albums to listen to in the car is uh trio sonatas that jean-philippe rameau wrote jean-philippe rameau was born in 1683 and he died in 1768 or something like that 1764 he was a libra by the way just because we're in rameau was oh yeah okay yeah 
All right. So, <laughs> um, and Rameau is one of my favorite composers, and these trio sonatas are one of the reasons why. And they're just beautiful. So let's listen to a little bit of the second one. I was going to obviously say something, but I am would be facetious in saying it. I was going to be like, well, better shotgun a can of wine before we get on this road trip. And I'm just kidding. It's absolutely gorgeous. Now, is it is it true that when we think of a trio sonata, sorry that I was yelling too because I had my yeah, headphones the music on. Yeah, sounds so loud. Um, is one of the reasons that you really like this as opposed to say, or that he's your favorite, maybe above, and, above other composers that do trio sonatas, is that the fact in a trio sonata, sometimes that harpsichord is kind of carrying the rest of the ensemble, small the small group, whereas in this case, it sounds like it's... He's just he's yeah. kind of the soloist. Yeah, in Rameau's trio sonatas, one of the fun things about the way he wrote the harpsichord part is that it meant that the harpsichord part was really important, quote-unquote, and, and the way that word is used in... Italian in music is obbligato, okay. so obligatory. It's, it has to happen. That's true for other trio sonatas. Obviously, it's an overstatement to say it any differently, but what it means is that the harpsichordist was more of part of the solo texture than any kind of just straight-up supporting texture. So if you listen to other trio sonatas, oftentimes what you'll hear in the trio sonatas of Corelli or maybe George Friedrich Handel is you'll hear a, a much... Uh, broader importance and responsibility put on the shoulders of the violin and the uh, viola da gamba or the cello, whatever the other part is, you'll uh, hear those two instruments having far more, I guess, interesting and interactive lines than the harpsichordist. Rameau's works, the harpsichord, like I said, is much more integrated into that solo texture, and and it does make for a very beautiful uh, just interplay between the three instruments. other reason I love this recording in particular is it's because it's like three of my favorite Baroque musicians of all. So, yeah. so and we'll put them in the playlist. Um, but I mean, it's, it's just beautifully played and uh, they're just, they're just really pretty, you know? They're I, have, really pretty. I, have, I have winemaking heroes and I feel like, and viticultural heroes, and I feel like Trevor Pinnock is one of Emily's <laughs> harpsichord. He's definitely my harpsichord music hero. hero. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that there are many harpsichord heroes, but maybe there are lots, classical actually. Music. Oh, yeah. really? There's lots of harpsichords, harpsichordists that I love, but Trevor is definitely the number, Sir Trevor is uh, number one. 
We yeah. always at Trevor Pinnock, and he never likes us back, and we really <laughs> wish that he would, but that's a whole uh, other. Should we listen right. to one more before we get to drink and wine? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, one more Rameau? Oh, yeah. Let's definitely listen to some more Rameau. Can we listen um, to something that's num- – unless you have something planned. No. Number four, yeah. some, because B-flat major, yeah. I feel like is a key that I always love, and just because it is – there is something that is – strange yet being in a major chord it there is something that is um sorry just really really beautiful about it yeah yeah let's listen to it This is how I'm going to feel when I'm walking into a vineyard for the first time in almost not a year, but close. And I like fall on my back on the soil. And I'm surrounded by vines in about less than a week. I'm going to be, it's going to feel like this. Yeah. So when we're driving, I know, so one thing that um, Emily has told me is that she can't drink caffeine. And I wondered like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I don't try not to drink caffeine after a certain time of day because it does really affect me. But I try to like, you know, if I know I'm going on a road trip, I'll have yeah. maybe a little extra at one yeah, or a little extra if I'm going to need to drive late in, mm-hmm. in the afternoon where I normally mm-hmm. wouldn't. Would you just listen to this and this would like make, you know, act like caffeine or, or like, inge- like, bring or, or not really? That's a good question. It kind of depends, I suppose. Probably you'll, you'll find out. <laughs> yeah, probably something like this would get my brain active, particularly if I put on more like Bach keyboard music. That would probably keep me awake. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love the Rameau. He wrote those, interestingly enough, very late in life, and it's the only set, uh, the only chamber music that he wrote. And I think maybe we've talked about these pieces a little bit in the past, but... We definitely have, yeah. yeah. I don't know about the pieces. I, I know we've talked about remote. Oh, for sure, Rameau, for sure. yeah, definitely. Okay, so I'm passing Emily. We we cracked open the Old Westminster Raw Rosé from 2019, and this is an unfiltered canned rosé that is made from Merlot, Syrah, Cab Franc, Cab Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon, excuse me, Chamboursin, which is a hybrid, and then Petit Verdot. So that's why it has this kind of really peculiar, but it's deep, like a deep watermelon, color. watermelon color. Yeah, it is kind of water, like a like if bronze, a little soft amount of like copper. Oh yeah, would, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah it's mm-hmm. it's really pretty, and it's got a little fizz. And I chose this because they're trying to make wine with as low of sulfur as possible, sustainably grown fruit. In this case, it's you know natively fermented. Um, the CO two, as far as I know, is natural in the can, and 
we're going to taste it part of it. So we have it in glasses, but we also have to taste it out of the can because I've found that I normally, if whenever I drink a canned wine, if I have glassware available, I always pour it into the glass because I like to see the color. Mm-hmm. I like to smell it because obviously in a can, you're not smelling much. Um, and that's, you know, a good half of the experience, right? And um, so I guess I put it in glassware so we could do that. But in the end, I normally prefer it out of the can, yeah. like how it was meant to. And I Do you ever pour if, it back in? You just like look at the color, have a little taste, pour it back in? No, I usually <laughs> just sit there with both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just scores and pours. Scores and pours. It kind of smells like watermelon, like watermelony. Yeah, it does. Mm, it's good though. Kind of like watermelon Jolly Rancher, mm-hmm. like candied. Ooh, on the finish too. A little yeah. spritz, just a little spritzy. A little acidy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of acid, kind of hits you, and then it goes away pretty quickly. All right now, let's let's do a little can test. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always going to be spritzier out of the can. I kind of prefer it out of the can. Yeah, I do. I too. mean, I guess yeah. I, I don't really have a. I mean, I like delicious. to smell it, but it's yeah, yeah, it's chuggable out of the can, right? Which you got to well, be careful with canned wine. Yeah. Because canned wine is a half a bottle in a can. Which is shocking. And I'll talk about price point in just one moment, but I want to quickly just go to off-premise and on-premise. So off-premise means you're buying it at a wine shop or liquor store or something. On-premise is you're buying it at a bar or, you know, somewhere where you're able to drink it where you buy it. Okay. And off-premise sales have gone up, yeah, in in about 2019, they've gone up 79% of canned wine in like a liquor store or in a wine shop or something. And- one source that I read says that by 2025, wine canned wine is going to occupy 10% of the off-premise wine market, which is huge. Think of your local Amazing. wine shop and 10% of it yeah. is all canned wine. That's insane. Yeah. One confusing thing is, so this can of wine that we're enjoying right now, the raw rosé is usually, you know, around 10 bucks, maybe a little less, maybe $9.99, $8.99, depending on where you're going. Yeah. Yep, per can. So you think for a half a bottle of wine... That's not that much. You know, yeah. it's a fair, a fair price. It's, yeah. you know, 16, 17 bucks a bottle, which mm-hmm. for a, a fairly natural wine is hard to find these days. Mm-hmm. The reason why canned wine hasn't really been successful in on-premise markets is because, or premises, I should say, is because when you think about it, this can of wine would probably be close to, say, 23 to $25 in a restaurant. Let's say 23 bucks. Yeah. And if it's, or... Let's just say even 20. People are going to see the can of wine. They're going to associate it with a beer and Mm -hmm. be like, 20 bucks? Yeah. When in reality, per glass, for a six-ounce glass of wine, this is $10 at a bar. You can't get a $10 glass of shitty Merlot for six (laughs) ounces. So now you're getting like a decent sparkling rosé for, I mean, like, let's be real, people. And the next wine we're going to taste is a really cool red from, from central northern California. And... This wine is a little bit more. It's $11 a can for off-premise. You get that into a wine bar or a stadium or wherever. I mean, stadium. I'd go see a sports event just to be able to drink this out of a can on-premise, let's be clear, (laughs) is that it would be, you know, close to $28. So people are going to look at that and be like, $28 for that? But they're getting a half a bottle of wine. So I don't know. That's just something I think people need to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, just it's all about the perception of it because I I understand logically that that's two glasses of wine, 
but it just does not look like it's two glasses of wine. You know, it just it doesn't totally make doesn't. Sense. And yeah. and it also think of this like okay, let, let's just say that the the second can of wine we're going to drink is I don't know. Let's just say it's twenty five bucks. Mm-hmm. If you go to a concert at First Ave, yeah, and you back when First Ave was having concerts, mm-hmm. and you were you pay twenty five bucks for this can, most people would do the math and be like, wow, well, I could have five beers for that. Okay, yep. well, if people are interested in really having five beers for that ABV, mm-hmm. like. Here you're getting two more than full glasses because a glass nowadays at any sort of establishment that cares about you enjoying a, some wine and getting to taste a few things, mm-hmm. you're getting a three to four ounce glass of wine. Mm. And especially the perception there when they when you see nine bucks for three ounces, you don't really think twice. Well, yeah. if you jack that up to six bucks yeah. now, or excuse six me, six ounces, ounces yeah. people are going to be like, what, the price? <laughs> so like this, but if you think, God, I get... A 12 to 13% ABV wine. Yeah. And you get to like sip, you know, that's another thing you have to be careful of because I've done that one time where I drank (laughs) wine out of a can like it was beer and it was sparkling wine and I was kind of fucked up. Like I had the spins and everything and I haven't had the spins since I was like eating Dorito sandwiches off of hot dog buns when I was like (laughs) illegally drinking when I was 20 or something up north. So yeah, anyway, I just... I don't even want to think about Dorito sandwiches. That just makes me want to Ralph. But two and a half glasses in this can. That's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, that's really incredible. Because I bet we tank that before the end of this recording. <laughs> yeah, before we get in a car and drive to yeah. South Dakota. Let's not, please. <laughs> oh, South Dakota. Okay. Well, one of the other things that I think is really nice to listen to in terms of classical music in a car doesn't have to be from the Baroque era. I think a lot of what we would call chamber music is nice to listen to and can be a little easier to hear. I think one of the problems with just full symphonic music is because the dynamic range can be so extreme. A full symphony orchestra, like when we were listening to that Scriabin piece, which is in our episode about gods. Oh, yeah. That orchestra is a huge orchestra and can produce a ridiculous volume. Yeah. Well, a string quartet isn't going to be able to produce that kind of volume, so therefore the extremes of listening to string quartet are going to be lower, right? Yeah. The range, for instance. Yeah. So so I think a lot of what we would call chamber music, which is, you know, quartets, quintets, things like that, is nice to listen to. Okay. Another thing that I think is nice to listen to is just solo music, solo violin music, solo cello solo trumpet, something like that that's monotonal and therefore has less of a dynamic range, or solo piano. So one of the things I love to listen to on the road and do quite frequently if I'm driving anywhere, I like to listen to the preludes and fugues that Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich wrote in the 20th century. Also a Libra. Also a Libra, which I am learning these things from Joe Mott. Uh, it's important. Libras are the best. Now And now it's coming back to me. Now I remember in that episode that we talked about Rameau that you brought up the fact that he was a Libra. I it remember was like that the now. first or second episode we ever I know, did. And that, I was like, Rameau's a Libra. 27 minutes to remember it because it was <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> um, but anyway, Shostakovich, Dmitry Shostakovich, Russian composer, uh, he was born in 1906, died in 1975. He wrote his Preludes and Fugues in the years 1950 and 51. And he modeled his Preludes and Fugues off of Preludes and Fugues that Johann Sebastian Bach had written during Bach's life, uh, which uh, Bach wrote those in uh, the uh, early half of the 
or in the first half of the uh, 18th century. So in any event, let's listen to a little Shostakovich. should note is there are 24 preludes and fugues because he's doing one prelude and fugue for each major and minor scale mm-hmm. of the chromatic scale so like all the whites and blacks yeah on the keyboard c major and, c minor thank yeah. you yeah mm-hmm. yep and so that's what when bach did the well-tempered cl- clavier mm-hmm. that's what he was doing and so that's mm-hmm. um there's a, it looks like a lot of them but they're very short. Yes. Um, so don't be yep. daunted when you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have time to listen to that because you might have time for like a quarter of them on your way to work. Well, yeah. Or you, if you're driving to L.A., you might have time to listen to the whole thing 17 times. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> or more. Okay. just complements the countryside, you know? I mean, granted, most of the road tripping I do is confined to the state of Minnesota or down to Iowa to visit my family. So, you know, the landscape doesn't change as drastically as like, hey, we're going over the Rocky Mountains now. Mm -hmm. But I just, I love these preludes and fugues, and I think they're just a nice way to pass the time in a car. Can we listen to, now that we listen to this, the C major, can we listen to the C minor? So you notice how this sounds almost like just that little bit of that minor tone. Like, I don't mean it like a negative or a sad or solemn, but it is. It doesn't have that little bit of like positivity in how it sounds, mm-hmm. for lack of a better description. Yeah, this is much more serious. And what's yeah. interesting is you, if you watch, if you are looking at Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, and the way it's listed in order of the way it's performed, usually I would imagine, it's it follows this pattern. If you type in circle of fifths, it'll give you circle of fifths, meaning like on the keyboard, right? And if you look at how it, it looks, you can see the pattern that he uses mm-hmm. to like jump around this circle of fifths and I don't know for mm-hmm. me who like looks for patterns in things to learn things um, that was really fascinating yeah they're related to each other so as you said it starts with the prelude in the fugue in C major then it goes to the prelude in the fugue in A minor and it does that because those two have the same key signature so they're relative relative major minor is what they're called and then you go to G major 
um, and the relative minor of G major is E minor, so that's how the order goes. And yes, you can see that pattern on the circle of fifths, and there are a million super cool patterns that you can find in the circle of fifths, which makes you realize just how divine it all is. Oh my gosh, <laughs> patterns. Yeah. My life is complete and oh, happy. Yeah. yeah, the key signature pattern on the circle of fifths is what, to me, started helping to make the most sense out of music. Um, for me in my life. But yeah, circle of fifths is some cool stuff. It's the circle of fourths if you go backwards, but yeah. Anyway, I like listening to solo piano music as well. It's not confined to Dmitry Shostakovich by any means, but um, I really enjoy listening to those preludes and fugues quite a bit. Canned wine? Canned wine, please. Let's try the red one. Okay, so first of all, think of this okay. before, we, before we get on some red wine. In 2012, the sales of canned wine in the United States, I think this is confined to the United States, was about $2 million sales in Canada, which sounds kind of like a lot. Yeah, I bet it's 10 times. Oh, easy. In 2020, yeah. it's been, well, for the 52 weeks that ended like in August or something like that of 2020, okay. yeah. it's 183 plus million. Wow. That's how much in the last shy of a decade wow. the sales of canned wine Almost has. Yeah, it's incredible. Times. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay, so let's get in, get in on this. I, I bought this because hopefully um, I'm going to go visit this guy. I visited him a couple times um, and love what he's doing. He was one of the first, we'll say, more kind of quote-unquote natural winemakers in um, or, or less intervention winemakers in California that he became known for. It. And he wasn't really waving that banner, thankfully. And we've talked about him on the show maybe once or twice, Chris Brockway um, of Brock Cellars. And he's located in an urban winery in Berkeley. And this is his... Love Red 2019. Now, Love Red is probably like the equivalent, the natural wine equivalent of, say, Kim Crawford. Everyone knows who Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is out there who likes Sauvignon Blanc. And I mean everybody. Everybody I know that isn't into natty wine drinks Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. So anybody that's into natty wine if, you know, this is like the least expensive wine and it's delicious and it's well-made, it's just like around 20 bucks and it's flipping, like nobody doesn't like it. Okay. And this is what I'm saying about price point because how much are we spending on, let's just, and we'll not talk about the canned version because that's all very going to be relative to the bottle price and the bottle price is very immediate for people. Okay. Kim Crawford is like 15 bucks, right? For a bottle. For a bottle. Okay. It, it depends, 12 to 15, depending on where you shop and how much you buy. Okay. This is, we'll say 20 for a bottle. For a bottle. Okay. So for five-ish dollars more, you're getting Carignan, which is the grape, 70-year-old vines that are dry farmed, meaning no irrigation to make these grapes. Have. So these grapes are starving and they're producing really intense, amazing. They've become acclimated and they're just deep and dense. Now we're coupling that with, well, the, a trifecta, Carignan, Valdigue and Syrah, all from the North Coast, so specifically from Solano County or, or Green Valley, they call it, and Mendocino. 
There's some whole cluster action. There's just a lot. This is just like, I can't believe that this can <laughs> is only this price, okay? Yeah. It's neutral French oak, and you get some concrete in there for freshness. And what do you think? So we're going to taste it out of the glass first. Cheers. I feel, cheers. I feel like I could smell the oak. Can I? Yeah, a little bit, just yeah. a touch. But then there, that concrete keeps it at bay. Like if it were all French oak, maybe it would be too much yeah. for you. Yeah. But that concrete really levels it out. I mean, dumb. Mm. Dumb. Wow. Wine in a can. Okay, so yeah. now taste it out of the can. <laughs> Emily takes beer chugs of wine <laughs> out of cans, and it's amazing. <laughs> I'll be driving to South Dakota. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> what do you That's think? Do you delicious. have a preference? Yeah, out of the can. Isn't it crazy? It's insane how different that one in particular is out of the can. And I've had, so to compare, I've had Brock Love Pink out of, blind, Mm -hmm. out of can, and Mm -hmm. in both in glasses. Yeah. And you can see the one in the can is a little filtered, and the one in the bottle is, is not. It's a little bit, just the slightest amount richer it's like if you have, and this is a really bad comparison because both of these are a great quality, but out of the can is like a really good quality like bread that you buy that's already sliced for sandwiches. And then the out of the bottle is like a really good, the same exact type of bread, mm-hmm. say oat bran, blah, blah, yeah. but it's in like a boule. It's in like a round shape. That you cut yourself. Like you, they're both really delicious, but you can notice one is just the smallest amount. It's a little more hearty. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so, what, like, why would anybody buy canned wine over bottled wine? So, we talked about convenience. We talked about the weight. Glassware is a big thing. You talked about like breaking things. Yeah, but you can also put it in a koozie. It's true. If you need to keep it cold, you can put it in a koozie. You can put your wine in a koozie, which is dope. It's true. What about, I don't know if you and I have ever experienced on this show corked wine before, but when you no. yeah. when you crack open a, a bottle of wine and it smells like wet cardboard mm-hmm. as a result of the cork, there are many reasons why, but the cork could not be completely washed of the solution, so the part of the cork taint can get, seep into your wine. Mm-hmm. No problem with that here. No. What about oxidation? Like if your wine is, suffers from too much air, like maybe the cork was faulty, dried out, mm-hmm. and you, instead of pouring and getting fresh fruit, you get stewed fruit. No problem with uh, no. hermetically sealed. It, it has no, like there's no oxygen yeah. getting in here. It's like, like there is President in Trump's motorcade. Also, it's like <laughs> <laughs> the thing too, I wonder- too bad how how much the oxygen is making a difference there between you pouring it into this giant i mean not giant glass but you know what i mean you're, it has to be you're probably right yeah. yeah of course i mean you know maybe it's this reason. is yeah it's meant for to have less oxygen in contact with it um another yeah. thing is light light can really affect wine and really destroy wine which is why most producers that make rosé that's not meant to be aged, because some rosé can age and be really delicious a couple years after the year it's released. The reason why they're bottled in clear bottles is so you can see that beautiful color mm-hmm. and go ahead and drink it, you know? Yeah. Whereas with canned wine, you're not going to age canned wine for the most part. <laughs> Although you and I were looking up something on canned wine the other day and it was like, how long can canned wine age? And it said one to 20 years. And I was yeah. like, What? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, maybe because there's no 
air getting to wine, right? So yeah. it's not going to go bad because of air. Yeah. But it could get bad because think of all of us during COVID when people weren't getting out as much as they're used to. Mm-hmm. Wine likes a little air yeah. to kind of for longevity, just a yeah. small amount. Yeah. So if it doesn't have that, maybe you're going to open it up and in three years and it's just going to be this tightly wound little thing, you know? So uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, canned wine, one of the negative things about it is like the stigma that it's not going to be good because it's canned. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what two, I would have assumed. Two examples here of like, yeah. so not the case. Right. Um, Both delicious. Yeah. And, you know, they're... A lot of people do filter their wines. Even a natu- more natural producer would lightly filter or fine just to make sure because cans are a bit more delicate. They're not as – they're strong, but they're not like thick glass. So if something were to still be living in there, meaning like yeasts that haven't precipitated out, mm-hmm. mm, I've seen some cans with some bulgy sides. Yeah. And it usually means that it's a fizzy version of what used to be inside and still. (laughs) What are we listening to next? Well, earlier I was mentioning how sometimes I like to take the opportunity that a long car trip provides uh, and do some listening of things that I want to know better, you know, instead of listening to the same Madonna album I've listened to a thousand times. That's a bad example because there's always a good reason to do that. Always. I looked at I just gave I know, Emily this look, look like, like I'm leaving you behind. Is, I was yeah. yeah, I was like, there's never we were talking about the bedtime stories album the other day and I was like I've always been in love with always with you. I guess you yeah. vote. Okay, anyway. And and Emily kind of made a little bit of a joke and kind of made fun of the album and I was I like mean, I was like, Oh don't, don't I know. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's can. not. So we can have multiple listens of yes, Take a Bow. We can. We digress, though. <laughs> yes, digress, please. Please do. <laughs> uh, so I like to listen to stuff maybe that, you know, I'd, I'd like to learn more about. And w- one of the things, since I'm such a Trio Sonata fan in general, I thought I would listen more to the Buxtehood Trio Sonatas. Now, Diedrich Buxtehood was also a Baroque composer. But he was older than Bach. And so Buxtehude, born somewhere around 1637 and died in 1707. So he's mid-Baroque is what we would call Buxtehude would be mid-Baroque, okay. middle Baroque. Born in Denmark? Present day <laughs> Denmark. Sweden? Sweden. Norway. Northern Germany. <laughs> if you look on, if you start like researching where he was born and like what they call him, yeah, they call him like a German Dane or Dane German. But then you look yeah. and it says he's born in Sweden. So he considered himself Danish. That's the whole point. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Wasn't Bach a student of this dude? Like yeah. everybody's like Johann Spachmach, all the things. Yeah. But he was actually a student of this badass. He loved Buxtehude and walked like 250 miles just to see Buxtehude. Right then and there. Yeah. It's like what we're doing, but like a mm-hmm. hundred times, like who dry, you know yeah. walks that far? So, Holy I mean, cow. just uh, even though I know I already said it, Buxtehude from about 1637 to 1707, Bach was born in 1685. So Bach and Rameau, who was born two years before Bach, were both late Baroque composers. Buxtehude was middle Baroque, and Buxtehude 
huge influence on all the composers after him. Um, Handel even? Of course, yeah. Handel Crazy. also born in 1685, by the way. Buxtehude wrote a lot of choral music, and he wrote a, so a lot of church sacred music, and he wrote a ton of organ music because, of course, organs have been around for about 2.3 billion years. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's a lot of organ music out there, and Buxtehude wrote a ton of it, and it's very important. <laughs> 2.3 billion. <laughs> organ... Organs and wine was how it all began. That's People how it all started. Go human race, <laughs> as Emily likes to say. <laughs> um, and Buxtehude wrote some really beautiful trio sonatas. He wrote two sets. For whatever reason, he opused them as one and two, even though he wrote these way late in his life. He wrote these, uh, published them rather, in 1696. His name is Buxtehude. The dude can do whatever he wants. It's very true. So uh, let's listen to the first trio sonata by Diederich Buxtehude from uh, the late 1600s. And what I love about Scores and Pores is Emily is queuing up this music is like I... I feel like I listen to a lot of classical music and I listen to a lot of weird stuff. I mean, a few things I've forwarded Emily's way and she's like, mm -hmm. I've never heard of that person. Yeah. But like I had never heard of, of Buxtehude and if I had, I, I didn't, it went in and out or I don't know. I just never, yeah. it never melded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing with somebody like Buxtehude who really concentrated the bulk of his music in, in the choral and organ categories means he was a little le he had little less far of a reach as someone like Johann Sebastian Bach who did write a ton of instrumental music that could go into you know the orchestral world and wrote a lot more solo keyboard music in terms of that could be played on piano you know what i mean mm -hmm. so Buxtehude writing for organ some of that really can't transfer very well to piano cuz organs have pedals right so i think because Buxtehude concentrated on ensembles and instruments that are less ubiquitous throughout the course of classical music is probably why a lot of people haven't heard of Buxtehude. That's my guess. Well, here's to being less ubiquitous. I agree. Here's the scores and pours. Scores and pours and some Buxtehude. What I want to make like make note of is compare this to the Rameau, where that harpsichord is just like salt, you know? It's just yep. like keeping everything together, mm -hmm. absolutely necessary, mm -hmm. but not obligato. I mean, necessary, but not almost obligato with a capital O. Right. You know, it's, it's in the background. Yeah, it definitely would be missed out of the texture if it weren't mm -hmm. there. Um, and it does have moments where it's by itself, but it's it's still, you know, the, the stars of the show here are the, the violin and the viola da gamba, which is a, a relative of the cello, a predecessor of the cello. So is he still doing all the, I'm looking, as I'm looking at the playlist, I see all kinds of, all kinds of keys. So is he doing this in the same fashion, like doing no. all the keys in the chromatic scale or no? Okay. Nope, he didn't. He only wrote, he wrote 14 trio sonatas. Okay. In, the, in the Baroque era, you kind of couldn't make, do all the keys. You could and you couldn't. That's a whole other conversation. I mean, the fact that Bach wrote his well-tempered clavier in uh, all the uh, keys of the chromatic scale 
was a unique thing that happened to kind of demonstrate some of the ways you could tune a harpsichord. Mm-hmm. So, but, okay, so but I okay. So you're not going to so see you have F sharp a lento, minor here. adagio, adante. Okay, so oh, that's well, those kind are of tempos. thing. Yep, yep, yep. So can yeah. we listen to? Do you mind if I don't know if you how you want to structure this? And no, if you want to skip all, but can we do like no one of each of the F major? So it starts in F major, right? Oh yeah. So well, we can hear the probably vivace lento and then the allegro yeah. adagio, like yeah, and just to get an idea of like yeah. So that's going to be an F major chord. Yep. F major. This is a fugue. Andante. The andante could possibly be in a minor key, but let's hear. Nope, F major. The harpsichord has the dampening pedal down. Yeah, I was wondering yeah. why that was. Okay. So pretty. No, I love this. Yeah. See? Who wouldn't want to listen to this on a road trip? <laughs> I can't wait. Okay, so let's let's um now. Here's gra- the fourth move. Grave and presto. And grave starts very serious and then does it get very speedy slow. as the way? Is, Yeah, this is kind of a kind of an improvisatory kind of fantasy. He was very good at moving back and forth between these sections that were more free and a little more structured, okay. which is really a beautiful part of his writing. Okay. So now can we go, can we fast forward a little so we can hear the presto? Yes. how I always, I mean, I, I wake up a little bit frenetically when I'm um, on a wine trip because I'm always so excited to get to whatever visit I have. And inevitably, it's always been a late night, usually when I'm, because I end up having, like, I think, oh yeah, I'll be done with that winemaker by like eight. And it ends up being like two in the morning. And inevitably, I always wake up and whether I'm tired whether I'm hungry, whether I'm hangry, whether I'm maybe a little hungover once in a blue moon, man, I wake up and I feel like this. <laughs> and I'm like, let's go. And so it's very uh, it's very apropos of this trip that I can't wait to get out to the vineyards again. I can't wait to see my people. Guys, I'm coming. From I'll a distance. You, from a distance. I'll see you soon. We'll be tasting with masks on and off, and I can't wait. Cheers. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Emily Reese and Jill Mott. You can find links and information about this episode and much more and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And that's where you'll also find a link to our merchandise. We're on Instagram at scores and pours. And if you have any questions or you have any show ideas or anything you want to let us know, you can DM us there at scores and pours Instagram. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.